Thank you for being here. And we invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. And we will read from the first 13 verses of this passage. Is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach in a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding the mystery of the faith in a, with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, and let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, good managers of their households, and good managers of their children in their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. We have spent a couple of weeks on Sunday night looking at the various words that are translated servant, service, minister uh, in the New Testament and how they relate to this particular work of deacons. Tonight, Lord willing, our last lesson on this subject, and we talk about what the text says about the qualifications for this work. Now, I don't know any other way to do this than simply to look at the text and to try to emphasize what the text emphasizes. So just to, tonight, we're going to simply try to look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 11, and, tell, and let it show us what we see about these qualifications. The Bible says, first, deacons likewise must be, must be men of dignity. Now, I want you to look at your translation carefully. Do you notice that the words must be are in italics? They are in the New American Standard Bible. They are because the word behind that, the word must, is not present in the Greek text. Now, look at verse 2. 
It is present there. An overseer then must be above reproach. It is used in verse 7. He must have a good reputation. The word translated must, present in verse 2, present in verse 7, when it says deacons likewise, the idea of there's something that they must be, like the elders must be. the, The words are not in the original. I do not think the supplying of these words to this text does damage in the sense that it perverts the meaning. I think it is telling us their qualifications, whether it has that word or not, this is what we know about who these people are supposed to be. A young preacher friend said, I was preaching in the audience through this passage and he mentioned an older preacher that happened to be in the audience that night who uh, always listens very carefully, very analytically, asks good questions after the sermon. And he said, I made a statement that I have heard every person make when they preach through this. He said, I said, this is an objective. And he said, this preacher came to me afterwards and said, I kind of agree with that, but what's wrong with a checklist? If God gave it, we probably should pay attention to it. If God said it that way, whatever we want to call it, we should pay attention to it. Now, I would say, in a certain way, it is a checklist, but it's more than that. It's more than that. And I'll try to demonstrate that in a moment, what I mean by the more than that part. But can we be any less than this text calls us to be? Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Now that word's only used about four times in the New Testament, and one of them is later In verse 11, where women must be, must likewise be dignified. This word is also the word used in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. When the text says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, etc., Think on these things, but whatever is honorable here, they are men of dignity. They are men of honor. They are dignified men. In verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. We speak of a person who talks out of both sides of their mouth. They are liable to say one thing to one group and another thing to another group, depending upon who is listening. And this is saying that elders should not do that. Deacons should not do that. Deacons must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. A lot of these qualifications are tied to self 
self-control, not addicted to much wine or not fond of sordid gain. Not fond of sordid gain. This about deacons, listen to what 1 Peter 5 and verse 2 says about elders. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, the Bible says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the word of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not with sordid, not for sordid gain. The same words are used in Titus 1 and verse 11, when the Bible says there, There are men who must be silenced because they're upsetting families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. The Bible says about the elders or overseers before that they are not to be people who are uh, lovers of money. In verse 3. Same kind of thing said about the deacons. A lot of the qualifications for elders are reduplicated, are duplicated in these qualifications for the deacons. In verse 9, it says they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Read through First and Second Timothy and Titus. Notice how many times Paul talks about a clear conscience. But they hold to the mystery of the faith. And this term mystery is used in the New Testament about 21 times in the writings of Paul to emphasize something that previously hasn't been revealed clearly, but now is more clearly revealed. The mystery of the faith holding to it. These are people who are known not simply for their character, but for what they believe. And they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They are people who live what they know and what they teach. I knew of a congregation which was in a 12 to 14 month period of time. Had three deacons that left their wives and left their children that can have a great impact on a congregation people who are strong people who are faithful people who are reliable are dependable in doing what is right this is what the text calls us to In verse 10, these men must also be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now this particular word for testing is used a few times in the New Testament. For example... 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether it's of God. Examine what you're being taught. Examine the things that you're hearing, as we talked about this morning. 
Let them first, let these men first be tested. This word is used in a similar kind of context in 1 Corinthians 16. In 1 Corinthians 16, in verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have directed the churches of Galatia, so uh, do you also. On the first day of each week, of every week, each of you is to uh, put aside and say, the New American Standard says, uh, that there be no collections when I come. Verse 3 is what I wanted to hit at. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, this is our same word tested in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. Whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift with Jerusalem. We saw last week that these words in this family word for deacons were used heavily in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when the Bible talks about giving to the poor Christians at Jerusalem. Here the congregation has their has taken their offering and they want to approve someone. They have taken this one. They approve this one. They're going to send him because he is reliable or this person is reliable to carry this gift. This, this money that we have for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. But the word approved, same word tested. Let them be tested. That they may serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now look at verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified. Not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. The word that is translated women can be translated women or it can be translated wives. The word is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. And it's almost even between those two words. Whether it's translated woman, whether it's translated wife. The question is this. Is this talking about the wives of the men who are under discussion in verses 8 through 10? Is it talking about the wives of the deacons? Or is this talking about women who serve in this particular role as special servants of the congregation? Well... Understanding our use of the word deacon the last few weeks. All Christians are are deacons in a sense. All of us are to be servants. Uh, There was one in particular, and I think we have mentioned her in Romans 16 verse 1, who is described as a deacon or servant of the church at Sincrea. This is Phoebe, Romans 16, 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church that is at Sincrea. Phoebe was a women's name. It uses the male term deacon in that passage. 
I'm not doubting she is a woman. I'm just saying it's interesting. It uses that particular term, deacon servant. Is this a deacon in the official sense of the term? Or is this a deacon in the sense in which we all are deacons as Christians, in which we're all special servants? If you look at a variety of commentaries, you will find them dividing. Uh, and both of them, and some of them, arguing very dogmatically. But often I get the feeling bringing ideas that they already had to this particular passage. Because it's very difficult to make a clear decision on that. I think contextually, it is more likely that this is a reference to the wives of the deacons and what is asked of them. The reason is because that's what's being described in verses 8 through 10. That's what's being described in verse 12 as the Bible describes these people who are serving in this role as husbands of one wife. I think it's more contextual to say that. Uh, But let me say this. Well, I do think this is talking about the wives of the deacons. Doesn't it make sense when anyone is doing a work for the people of God and serving as a servant in a special way that we have some kind of spiritual criteria To select those people. If I did not state that clearly or well, let me illustrate. This happened when I was very young. But I can still remember this. One of the ladies at the congregation who would be one of the ones that got food together when someone passed away. They got food together, brought it to the funeral home or wherever the family wanted the food to be taken. One of the three ladies got to where she only attended on Sunday morning. For worship was not a question of whether she was able to do any more. She was a very young lady. It was a question of whether she wanted to do any more. She got to where she was only attending on Sunday morning, and it got to where after that she was only attending rarely on Sunday morning. Some felt the responsibility to say something. If you're taking up food for the congregation, you need to be more part of things. The family left, went to another congregation, <coughs> didn't stay there very long before they quit going altogether. It may make sense. When anyone serves in any way among us, that 
there is a spiritual criteria to be met. But I also think that we have to understand in a work like being an elder, in a work like being a deacon, in a work like being a preacher, the whole family is involved. And the effectiveness of the wives of these people is going to make a lot of difference in how effectively people serve. And so, as it talks about these women or these wives, it says they're to be dignified. And somebody says, well, why didn't he say anything about the elders' wives in verse 1 through 7? Could it be that this applies to both the deacons and the elders? It makes sense to me. But, but, but he says in verse 11, women must be dignified. They're not malicious gossip. Did you know that word for malicious gossip? It's used 38 times, I believe, in the New Testament. And I think 35 of them is translated devil. This is a word for the devil. But it's used in a few contexts. And it obviously indicates gossip. What? Does the devil, the term devil means slanderer. The devil slandered God to man in Genesis chapter 3. God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God's not got your best interest at heart. He slanders God to man. And he also slanders man to God. When God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. Does Job fear you for nothing? You put a hedge about him. You put forth your hand and you touch him. And he will curse you to your face. He accuses God to man. He accuses man to God. You can't have people who serve as elders, as deacons, or their families... Who are spreading slander like that. You can't have them doing that. Temperate, these wives are said to be. Faithful in all things in verse 11. Faithful in all things. The word for faithful is the same word. For example, when Jesus asked this kind of question in Matthew 24, verse 45, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master puts in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who is the faithful and dependable slave? These, these wives are faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and their own households. Now again, there are a lot of things that are said about the deacons that are similar to what's said about the elders. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Verses 4 and 5, the qualifications for an elder, for a bishop, for a, a shepherd. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own children, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, this is a point where I want to come back to this idea. A checklist... 
but more than a checklist. Certainly, if God says this is what the qualification should be, we can't eliminate it. We can't say it is of no value. But it's more than a checklist. Let me illustrate. A man, a very good man, got along well with people. Uh, not extremely outgoing, but but was a very likable person. His name stood up for an elder. He had a good wife, two children who were Christians, who were faithful. But a difficult. All the time his children were being right. He hadn't become a Christian. He had believed in children. He had believed in life. But it really didn't have to do much with him guiding the family. It's more than just a checklist. Where you can say, okay, his kids are faithful. It is someone, the idea is not to discriminate against the unmarried person who 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us has some advantages. The point is not to tell us that children who can't, parents who can't have children are less than complete. That's not the point. The point is that people in these positions have proved themselves by their family. For the family is the greatest training that elders, that deacons, that preachers, that any of us ever do. How did they do in that regard? And it says, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in faith that is in Christ Jesus. I want to go back and to talk about one more thing in this list. First Timothy 3 verse 8 mentions deacons must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. I want to focus on the not addicted to much wine part. Some have compared First Timothy 3 verse 3 which tells the elder not addicted to wine, with verse 8, which says not much wine, and this has been used as an argument to defend what we would speak of today as social drinking. Is that the intent 
of the passage. First of all, the word addicted that's found in verse 8. It is our same word. We use this word. This word was used in the text that we looked at this morning. It was translated beware in Matthew 7 verse 15. Beware of false prophets. And it's translated beware often in Matthew. Matthew 6 11, Matthew 7 15, Matthew 10 17 among several others. It is also used in the sense that they were giving attention to Simon in Acts 8 verses 10 and 11. They were giving attention to him or or it's used in a sense of to pay attention in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 4 not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. The word pay attention is our same word there translated addicted. The idea is you're not Carried away by, you're not influenced by, not carried away by wine. How do we deal with that subject in our day? I have seen the arguments made that for any Christian to take any amount of of alcohol in any circumstance violates the New Testament. I think that would be a very difficult case to make. First Timothy 5 verse 23. As Paul told Timothy, don't drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. That's Timothy's prescription. Not necessarily everybody's, but that is his, was his prescription. I think you'd be difficult to make the case that way. But at the same point, it's going to be very difficult to make a case for modern day social drinking based on this passage. Or anywhere else, for example, in the New Testament. Now we could talk about the fact that their wine seems to have been more watered down and softer than than ours today. And this is not going to be a complete and thorough discussion of the subject. But there are good reasons to avoid Alcohol, without simply having a thou shalt not there in Scripture. Look at Romans 14. Romans 14. is dealing with the eating of meats. And I think it is particularly true. I think the book of Romans written to these Christians. Now it is... For a while, Rome was only a Gentile church. Do you remember what Acts 18, verses 2 and 3 says? Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome for about 49 to 54 AD. It's a Gentile church. And now, after Claudius dies, the decree ends, Jews come back to Rome, and now you've got Jews and Gentiles seeking to live among each other in Christ. And you've got Jewish brethren who who 
are followers of Jesus Christ, but perhaps still paying attention to the food laws of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, where you've got Gentiles who have no questions that those things are okay. And Paul is saying that no food is unclean in itself in verse 14. But he says, if anyone esteems anything to be unclean, again, verse 14, to him it is unclean. You can't do something to violate your conscience. Paul doesn't tell these Jewish Christians who come back to Rome, loosen up and eat unclean food. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He tells the group, don't do anything that's going to cause someone else to violate their conscience. In verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. Now that's Paul's discussion on the subject. All things indeed are clean. Jesus said the same thing, Mark 7, 19. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Don't do anything that calls someone else fall away to turn away from God don't do anything that causes them to offend not that they don't like it but that you're causing them to do something that deep in their heart they think is wrong and they cannot do without sinning don't do it don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. It's better not to eat meat. It's better not to drink wine. It's better not to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In a similar context in 1 Corinthians 8. Similar context. It's a different congregation. It is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Though mainly it seems Gentiles. But he tells the people in verse 12, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes your, my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat as long. I'll never eat meat again so long so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This is not a subject where we proclaim our rights. This is a subject for sacrificing our rights for someone else. They stayed and that They is a vague reference to studies that I've seen on subjects that 10% of people are alcoholics in the first dream. I guess that means they're hooked from the moment they've tried it. Do we really want 
to encourage a behavior? Do we really want to encourage a behavior that is going to call some people to go down that abyss of a lifetime struggle with alcohol? I stated, and this is still true, that this is not a thorough subject, thorough discussion of the subject. I recognize this. I could give other reasons why it's wise to avoid it. I think that that, to me, is the most compelling of all reasons. But I want to use an illustration. And I want to beg particularly those of you who are younger to listen to what I'm about to say. I want to be vague enough for anybody who hears this tape that they will identify the person. This person in school growing up and playing baseball in the summer was a year ahead of me. He was a year ahead of me. He was... He had the kind of job... I'm not going to be too specific. But it was an honest and decent living. But it's the kind of job a lot of people would love to have. And he was not only had the job. He made a whole lot of money. By this job. A whole lot of money. It provided him leisure time. And it provided him a very good income. Some things all the world would look upon as success. He had a wife. He had children. But somewhere along the way, He became involved with alcohol and he took hold of him and would not let him go. He would go through rehab and he would come out clean only to fall again. And a little over a decade ago. He took his life. Let me tell you one of the reasons I use the illustration. While he grew up in a different congregation, he was a member of the church of Christ. His family did something that you don't see a lot today in the obituary. Many times you read an obituary, it will not even get calls of that. They wanted explicitly stated that it was alcohol and his addiction to alcohol that caused his life. That took his life. I remember 
saying something to his father after that. Who took it pretty heroically and tried to use those events as a warning to others. And maybe, maybe his life and death are not in vain if they can help one of you all never get started on that road. A lot easier than coming off alcohol, coming off drugs, is to never get started in the first place. That's the easier path. God bless you. And help us all live faithfully to Him. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, You are worthy of worship and praise. You give everything in Your Word for some purpose, for some reason, for Help us to listen to every word you say. Help us to reflect on what it means and its significance to us. We pray, Lord, that we might pay attention to what 1 Timothy 3 says on the subject that we've discussed about what these people are to look like who serve in this role as deacons. We want to pay attention to that. and We pray that as we contemplate that, that all might be done to your glory and your honor and your praise. And we pray that we can take the general instruction that we learn from this and apply it to all our lives. That we may walk in ways that are faithful to you, that are pleasing to you. Help us, O God, to be your people. For those who are Christians, and even those who aren't, who wrestle with the problem we have discussed. May they see that you are the answer to their problem. That alcohol cannot fill the emptiness of our souls. But that is only something that you and your love and your forgiveness can do. Hold us in your hand. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There is power in the blood. Jesus can bring forgiveness. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, you're willing to turn from your sins in repentance 
and be baptized to have your sins washed away, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.